regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hello everyone, uh, welcome to a new episode of Datacast and today I have the pleasure to be on a call with Jim Dowling. Jim Dowling is the CEO of Logical Clouds and an associate professor at KTH Pro Institute of Technology. He is uh, also a lead architect of the open source Hopsquare platform, a horizontally scalable data platform for machine learning that includes the industry first feature store um, he has a background in work research and industry, which may be of interest to many of the listeners. So, Jim, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, James. So, uh, by way of introduction, uh, let's start with your uh, educational background. So, I saw that you uh, got your BA and PhD in computer science from Trinity College Dublin in the late 90s, early 2000s. Uh, would you mind going over your experience there, alongside some of your early exposure to uh, academic research in uh, distributed systems? I actually grew up in Dublin. I'm from Ireland, Dublin and Ireland. And I went to the local university, Trinity College Dublin. It's uh, the premier computer science institution in, in, in Ireland, or it was at the time. And I ended up doing a PhD there after I did my bachelor's. I actually went to work in Germany for a year in industry and came back. Uh, my interests at the time were primarily in AI and probably in second place distributed systems. But there was a PhD available in distributed systems, so I went ahead and did that. At the time, it was very exciting in the late 90s. You know, so my supervisor, Professor Vinnie Cahill, he was CEO of a company called, he was the first CEO of a company called Iona Technologies. I think they're worth about $2 billion at the height of the boom, and they turned over $100 million annually. Um, they were building something called middleware, which is networked uh, software for connecting computers together for building distributed systems. Uh, but he stayed in academia, so I had the pleasure of having him as my supervisor. And, you know, there were a lot of startups going on at the time, a lot of excitement in industry, and distributed systems was was a pretty new area. I mean, not new, new in the sense that it had been around for 20 years, but it wasn't as uh, high profile as it became, let's say, in the last 15 years, where, where more and more people understood the need for distributed computing. So there were, you know, a number of research groups around Europe, and um, people like, you know, Werner Fogels, we kind of knew from around the scene, he's now the CTO of AWS. You know, I got into that area and I ended up doing kind of work on software engineering at some level for distributed systems, something called reflective programming. We were trying to build distributed systems that would be easy to write objects that were uh, accessed over the network, that maybe persisted their state to disk, maybe that were load balanced. And we try and make a lot of these things transparent to the programmer. So we did this in programming languages. And, you know, so we try to make, in some sense, intelligent objects. You know, that kind of led me in later on, I guess, back to AI in my PhD, because a lot of people in the distributed systems space were just doing rule-based systems. But I, uh, this affinity for AI, and I ended up looking at reinforcement learning as a technique in that space to make these objects more intelligent. And naturally, I moved from classical reinforcement learning to distributed reinforcement learning. Thanks for sharing that anecdote. And so let's dig a bit deeper onto some of the research that you conducted, like I just mentioned under guidance of Vinny Cahill, your research focused on uh, dynamic software architecture, 
particularly the K-component model that enables individual components to adapt to a changing environment. Can you just provide like a brief description of sort of the dynamic software evolution and the mechanism of, of this K-component model? I was working at statically typed programming languages, which was quite popular at the time. You know, we had C++ I worked on primarily, and we also had Java. I would say dynamically typed programming languages, we didn't have the Python wasn't as big as it is today. So what people were trying to do was they compared, they cared about performance a bit more, but they wanted systems that were more adaptable, that could change in runtime. And we weren't thinking about doing that at the distributed system level, that you would add new services and remove them, but within a single system that you would take a system that's running and be able to take components, add them, remove them as needed to make the system adaptable and at some level intelligent to its to changes in its environment. So that's what part of my PhD was about, was developing this component model. And then the second part was putting it, what was the intelligence that you would put on top of it that would sense the environment and react to changes to it. And that's where I ended up making contributions in the area of distributed reinforcement learning. Another research slide that you focus on is called, so this one is a decentralized coordination model called collaborative reinforcement learning. Yeah. I believe this model enables different groups of reinforcement learning agents to solve online optimization problems in dynamic mm. system. How is this technique different from the previous cell-adaptive one? Yeah, I th- that idea was actually inspired. I read a really interesting book on ant colony optimization. So I had this fascination with ants. So that ants were able to collaborate to solve very difficult problems. So problems that are actually NP-complete, such as the shortest path between two points, right? So the traveling salesman problem is, is the, probably the best known example in that space. And ants used a technique where they would all walk in random directions. And then when an ant finds a food source, they'll walk directly back to the nest and lay down a pheromone trail. And the other ants would then, with high probability, when they smell the pheromone trail, follow it to the food source, and then they would converge on that shortest path. This way, they're able to solve the problem of finding the shortest path to food sources. I looked at reinforcement learning, and I had a student, a guy called Owen Curran. He's a brilliant guy, tragically passed away a few years ago um, in a boating accident. He worked at Google, and he drowned sailing out in New York, actually, in in the bay. But Owen was a brilliant guy, and we were looking at reinforcement learning and and colony optimization and how to put them together, so how to make and to solve a specific problem because it's always important to solve a problem when you're working with very basic technologies you're trying to make a contribution by combining two different primitive technologies so the problem we tried to solve was routing we'd actually built this ad hoc routing network in in trinity college that was connecting from there was an mit media lab center at the other end of dublin and we had these posts set up where we were able to route packets uh, along the posts all the way to media lab and what we're trying to build was a, a routing algorithm where people walking around would be able to find the shortest path because they would be just connecting to other random computers protocols. So they had a device with a wireless network controller, and you would turn it on your Ethernet controller in ad hoc mode, and it would be able to send packets to other nodes doing promiscuous listening. So what we're trying to do is basically say, well, how can we do the same thing as Anthony optimization does, but with reinforcement learning? So what we ended up was building a model for how agents, individual reinforcement learning agents, could collaborate by sending packets to one another, basically taking actions to send packets, we use model-based reinforcement learning. At the time, everyone was into model-free reinforcement learning. So Andre Ng had this, he built this helicopter that could fly after 5,000 attempts of failing. But the problem with model-free reinforcement learning is you have to have many failed attempts before you learn anything. And in distributed systems, routing a packet in the wrong direction is very expensive. So we looked at a model-based approach to doing this. And then the pheromone problem that I talked about earlier, we added that to reinforcement learning so that if you learn that a particular action of writing a packet to another agent um, is successful, eventually you'll unlearn it because 
mobile agents move around, we don't want them to basically, if they're going to converge on a solution and stick to that solution, but the agent moves and the environment is now non-stationary, where you need to basically handle that non-stationarity, which we did with equivalent of the pheromones from Ancaldi Optimization. So we applied applied this as well for K-component model to do, you know, intelligent load balancing across components as well in a distributed setting. Yeah, well, thanks a lot for putting a lot of concrete details on that. I'm so a little bit familiar with that ancillary optimization of algorithms. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's amazing to see how, how much current system can be inspired by a lot of the biological nature. Um, I suppose like, there's a lot of problems that, that can be solved using this technique, not just in, in this setting for, for mobile systems. I guess like after you finish your PhD from the late 2005 to early 2007, you were a senior consultant for MySQL. So what were some of the notable projects that you got involved in? I worked on the, uh, there's a team called MySQL Cluster. It's a distributed in-memory database team. The, the inventor of the database called Nico Romström, quite brilliant. Uh, I ended up doing just the Java connector. So they were C++ crew. And I ended up building that and learning a lot about, you know, industry and how to build real systems. And a lot of code went into production. We had a large customer called uh, Nortel. Canadian company, I think they're defunct now, um, and it was running on on you know uh, home location registries, handling many users. So it was very much a learning experience about, particularly about how to build system software and, and practical distributed systems and care about performance aspects and things like that. Since 2007, you have been a researcher at the Rise Research Institute of Sweden. Can you share some of the relevant details about different initiatives and collaboration happening within Rise? Yeah, so Rice, uh, at the time it was called the Swedish Institute of Computer Science, but we recently rebranded to Research Institutes of Sweden. So it's all of the different research institutes. In Europe, we have this tradition in many countries that there are national funded research labs. And in Sweden, Rice is the nationally funded research organization. So it includes research in many different domains. What Rice is designed to do is it's more practical and more applied research than what you would find in a university where you typically concentrate on know, very fundamental problems. So there's a lot of the income of the Research Institute is actually industry projects. Uh, maybe a third is industry, and then maybe a third is kind of base research grants, and then a third is applied research grants. So the kind of things that we did was, and actually I get back to reinforcement learning, I applied to get money for reinforcement learning because that was my love at the time, and I couldn't get it. <laughs> In 2007, 2008, nobody was interested. It was the perfect time to start a big research project, but I could not get the money. And peer-to-peer was kind of similar to what I've been doing with these collaborative reinforcement learning agents. So I said, oh, I'll start doing that. There's money in that. So we ended up getting money for peer-to-peer. And then subsequently, big data as well. It was an area where there was money available. I ended up moving. So, you know, a part of the lesson there is that often the research funding agencies have huge influence on how the research in different countries follows. If we take what happened at the same time in Canada, you had the Fair Institute, we're funding reinforcement learning, we're funding you know, neural networks, and we see the amazing results that came out of there at the time. So uh, at the time, it was a, really a kind of a winter, the AI winter, that, and I just couldn't get the money. So it was like, okay, I, you know, I'll do what I, what I can get money to do. It's kind of similar. Um, peer-to-peer, but it's not, not, it wasn't, you know, it was more systems-oriented research, of course. Is that like a priorities from the government? There's different funding bodies, right? So you have like basic research funding bodies. And, and actually, I remember I got a rejection from them. There are the European, in, at least in Europe, we have these very large research programs, kind of like the NSF in the States. They set priorities, which are basically based around increased employment, jobs, innovation, obviously also environment and society. So, you know, if you're, 
in the technology space, often the vast majority of research is towards applied research. So what's the next cool area? Where will the VC money go and where will the jobs be created? So if you're going to go to a place which is in an AI winter, you know, AI just wasn't a hot area at the time. So there wasn't that money available for doing applied research in AI. And then the basic funding bodies didn't think it was an area of that much importance either. So there wasn't that level of activity in research. And also AI hasn't been funded in Sweden very well compared to, let's say, the UK and Ireland, where I came from, where it was a, you know, a larger research area. I see. On another note, like, was there any particular reason that encouraged you to move from Ireland to Sweden? Yeah, well, they say people move for money or for love. And I didn't come to Sweden for the money. <laughs> you know, I have a lovely wife and three kids here. So that's kind of the reason I came here. Got it. And still here. Let's discuss a little bit about some of those research you have conducted throughout your time at RISE. As you mentioned, your initial interest was on peer-to-peer system. You work on a couple of like theoretical results for different uh, heuristic search to like work topologies in, in this use case of peer-to-peer system. You know, maybe can you elaborate a bit more on like, why you're interested in this domain and what type of problem that you attempt to tackle? You know, it came from AI again. I, I like this idea that you could build complex systems out of very simple rules. So, you know, the, with ankle optimization, the simple rule was walk randomly when you find a food source, deposit a pheromone and walk directly back to the nest. One of the results that I had was something called a gradient topology, which is a, a very simple way of organizing nodes so that you, if you take peers in a peer-to-peer system and if each of them have a, a single scalar value, and if they talk to their neighbors and say, I'll, I'll preferentially connect to nodes who have a higher scalar value than me. And if all nodes follow that rule, what they do is they end up forming a gradient topology. Obviously, it depends on the distribution of scalar values in the network, but depending on the system, you can kind of design that. If they're random numbers, we'll get kind of a, a nicely formed gradient. And, and what the properties of the gradient is then the distance from a node at the edge of this circle to the center will be on the order of log n hops. Okay. So that means in, in a rat, but at the time, how people were routing in these what we called unstructured peer-to-peer networks was they would randomly route data around. And then how can you find anything in a random network, right? So the idea here was that the nodes in the center of the gradient would be able to provide services and they would be the better nodes because they would have a higher utility value and the nodes would self-organize to do this. Now, this actually went into a version of this algorithm went into production at a, a company here in Stockholm who were still doing quite well doing video streaming for companies. So what they do is actually they use the algorithm to find the best nodes inside a VPN at a network. And that node then routes the streaming traffic to the other nodes, again, using peer-to-peer technology. And we did some other variants of that algorithm uh, with some other people. So the people like Don Mark Gelassity worked with, and then Ali Godsey as well, who's now CEO of a company called Databricks. So a bunch of good people who did some good work there. Fantastic. Colleague at KTH, Amir Pavera as well. Don't forget names. <laughs> so yeah, as you kind of already like really mentioned that, some of that little work, like basically building peer-to-peer live streaming system, applying some of those theoretical results to like real world system in the industry. A couple of them that I found when I look up some of your research called Radon TV and Glyph. I suppose like what are some of the unique challenges with live streaming that you had to deal with? Yeah, I spent a lot of time actually implementing a, a live streaming system. So Amir, um, who's now a professor as well at KTH, who did, did this work with him, you know, because really interested in building system software. So you can do simulations and get papers out and that's kind of, 
somewhat satisfying. Of course, you know, getting published at a top conference is really great. But the goal often in distributed systems is to get into systems conferences, and that means building real systems. And that's why it takes a long time to do PhD in distributed systems. You know, you have to implement a system and so on. So, you know, we implemented a, a couple of actual systems uh you know we went all the way down and we actually had a programming language called compix it's a framework uh, that runs on top of java and uh, it's still there we actually it's been reinvented in rust recently bryce are using it to build a new um, streaming platform with that programming framework or component model we built the live streaming application on top of it and i think the challenges are mostly system challenges right like you have to learn a lot about how to encode streams, how to, you know, serialize, deserialize them efficiently. And the actual, you know, the, the research then is just kind of, if you're doing small bits on top of that, if you really want to, you know, to get into top systems conferences, I think we got one of these published at ICDCS and we're addressing problems, real world problems, like how do you do not traversal, you know, that kind of thing, which was, you know, peer, peer researchers were just ignoring it. But when you build a real system, you have to solve it. Mm -hmm. So because when we we're one of the few groups, I guess, building real systems, then we were able to publish about it because we've encountered the problem and found good solutions for it. That really showcased the importance of bridging the gap between some of those academic improvement as well as practical consideration in, in industry. And it seems like those latter research that you conducted at RISE allows you to connect and, and meet with a lot of those industry partners to actually apply some of the research into their own products, right? Yeah, I mean, there's a big companies like Ericsson and so on who are at uh, Scania and uh, so on in Stockholm who are partnered with Ryzen. And a lot of the research is, is guided to some extent and done for the benefit of these companies. You know, there's some, some very good fundamental research being done in Ryzen on compilers and uh, the kind of research that would have been done in industry labs 20 years ago, but now industry, since Google and Apple basically disavowed basic research in computer science and said, you don't, shouldn't do basic research, then big companies like Ericsson, you know, huge company, they don't do basic, that level of basic research anymore. So there is a role for research labs like Rice to, to do a lot of the basic research that they need, that they still need to make innovative products. Besides your involvement with Rice, since 2011, you've also been a professor in the School of Electrical Engineering and Computer Science at KTH from Institute of Technology. There, you are affiliated with the Division of Software and Computer System. So can you give an overview of research activities within your department? Yeah, sure. The department, it's a mix of people from distributed systems. We have a sort of a sub-team of people in distributed systems. We have programming languages, people, real-time embedded systems people. We all get along quite well in that way. I mean, in, in the sense, we like all building real systems. So, you know, I think uh, in many research groups in, in universities, you have theoretical aspects where people just do theory. And our particular department has a, a very uh, heavy focus on practical building systems and evaluating real systems. I think that's, you know, that's kind of my background as well. So I enjoy it there. Perfect. At KTH, you have taught classes on both research on distributed system as well as more practical level course on deep learning on big data. I suppose, what are some of the types of problem and projects that your students can learn from taking these courses? Yeah, I had a course on peer-to-peer. -peer. I think it's actually, because I'm on leave at the company, I'm not teaching the course. It's, it'll, it'll probably come back when I go, go back to the university full-time. And then the course on scalable machine learning was an interesting one because I applied to do it in 2014. Um, there's a, a European Institute of Technology, EIT, it's European Institute of Technology, and we had a program on data science and I wanted to do a course on deep learning. And I knew at this day, 2014, it was obvious deep learning was gonna be this huge thing, right? And it took until 2016 until the course was actually, because a two year delay. And I was shocked that it was the first deep learning course in Sweden 
first course that was actually covering deep learning. Uh, since then, obviously, there's a lot of courses that have appeared in deep learning in, in Sweden. And I'm a systems researcher in distributed systems doing the first course in deep learning in Sweden. And I was kind of, but we, we, we actually, we did a lot of interesting practical things because we had this Hopsworks platform what, we were, what the students were able to do was they're able to actually train models on real GPUs with huge amounts of data with the help of Rice. Actually, Rice had a cluster with you know, a petabyte of capacity and we had, I think we had 20 odd GPUs or 24 GPUs. The students could, could log in on our platform Hopsworks and, and train models and actually train models on tens of gigabytes of, of data. At the time in 2016, this was quite unique globally. You know, it obviously was good for getting your platform tried and tested by students. So they were a bit guinea pigs, which is not always, they're not always happy about. But, you know, when you're building an open source platform, you need to bootstrap it. And this is a great way for us to bootstrap it as well. And also, the, you know, students got this unique opportunity to not just work on MNIST, to work on real data sets as well. For sure. Yeah, I'm just curious, at the time that you were teaching these courses, what was sort of the level of excitement brought from the student in terms of like learning about deep learning? The first iteration, I, I caught, taught the deep learning course three iterations, 2016, or was it 2015, 16, 17, no, 2016, 17, 18. And in the first year, 2016, it was really, really exciting. I mean, I, every week I would uh, I would give a, a list of, because I, you know, I followed the Quok Lees on Twitter and I would give an update of the latest things that are happening because there was just so much happening at the time. You know, you had new techniques appearing, things like dropout if you didn't bring the end of 2015. And then we had, you know, this is even pre-transformers and LSTMs were, were taking off and convolution nets were, you know, had taken off. There were a lot of really exciting things. I remember attention, I taught about attention just as it came out at the time. So we had this discussion of local attention, global attention, and attention is all you need. And, you know, I think the students really, really, you know, found that this is an area where things are happening. This is a revolution. You know, I think it still is the case that we're still in the middle of the revolution and you won't see it until history's written in 20 or 30 years. We'll touch by your Hopsworks later on in our conversation. Before that, I think like one unique thing about this kind of courses that you taught is like the combination between uh, machine learning and distributed system. And so related to both of this topic, you wrote this article on O'Reilly in 2017 called Distributed TensorFlow, which is really in-depth and talking about some of these key concepts. And I guess like, you know, distributed system concept can be applied to make machine learning, both training and influence faster. So can you walk over some of these key concepts that you cover, as well as the uh, deep learning hierarchy of scale being defined towards the end of the article? Yeah, sure. At the time, I, I'd been teaching the course, I think, for two years, and we had different backgrounds of students. You had some from distributed systems, and you had some from the AI programs, or just doing pure AI. Both had their had their strengths and weaknesses, and, and the main weakness I saw from people in an AI background was that they liked Python, but they just would not write distributed programs. They just... They would do everything they could at the time to avoid uh, writing a distributed program, even though the benefits of it were obvious at the time. So what we saw in 2017 was we saw huge improvements in the state of the art of the ImageNet competition, for example. I think it was first Facebook showed how with 256 GPUs, they reduced training time from weeks on ImageNet to a couple of hours or an hour. That was news at the time. People kind of said, well, hang on, this is quite significant, right? So if it took takes three weeks to train a state-of-the-art model in ImageNet, you can get it down to one hour. At the time, what you could basically say was that GPUs were not getting faster. They were not getting that much faster that you can reduce the training time and by a factor of 100. You do it by doing going distributed, going from one GPU to many GPUs, to distributed GPUs. So the techniques at the time, so TensorFlow had some early support for distributing 
training. Let's try and be clear what I mean by distributed training. This is two types that, that's really important. One is you can have lots of GPUs and you can do things like search for good hyperparameters by running lots of parallel trials. And those trials are independent, right? They're running independent of each other. You send it to the worker that runs the trial locally, sends the results back to some kind of an optimizer that, that'll try and find the best combination of hyperparameters. And you might have a model that you use to guide that search, or you may do random search. At the time, random search was very, very popular. We call that weak scaling because there's, it, it's trivially scalable. You can scale to hundreds or thousands of workers and there's no problem. But distributed training, which is where you want to train a model and you want to add resources, in this case, an accelerator, a GPU, and you want to you do that because you want to reduce the time it takes to train a model. So if training ImageNet takes three weeks and we want to get the time down for three weeks to one hour, well, we can't do that by buying a faster NVIDIA GPU. We buy lots of NVIDIA GPUs and we connect them together. Then you need an algorithm by which each worker will train on a subset of the day training data. And then that they'll share the updates to the weights, the gradients with one another so that they all make changes to the model. Because in this case, we're talking about what we call data parallel training, where there's a copy of the model at every worker. So every worker is going to take this copy of the model They'll train on a subset of the data. They'll do some updates to the weights, and then they'll share those updates with other workers. Now, at the time, people were, were had a central server to collect all of these updates. It's called a parameter server. And you know, there were some ways of scaling this by sharding that parameter server. So, so having not just one parameter server, but having many parameter servers and, and spreading out the weights or sharding them across them. But the problem here was that the workers are, are sending their data to the parameter server and they're downloading it, but they're not using all available bandwidth, right? So in peer-to-peer -peer systems, nodes use both their upload and download bandwidth efficiently. In this case, there's a big bottleneck, which is the parameter server, even if it's sharded. So a new algorithm came out at the time that made this big improvement. The algorithm is well known from high-performance computing. It's called collective all reduce. It's where you organize the workers in a ring. What the nodes do is they send their gradients to their neighbor in the ring. And that sends its gradients to the next neighbor and they travel around the ring in this way. So by this way, you collect all of the updates from all the other workers. They just travel around the ring until they get to you. You collect the update and you merge it with your own updates. The article you're talking about, uh, O'Reilly basically showed, in particular data scientists, you shouldn't be scared. You can also write distributed training algorithms in TensorFlow, in Python, that will scale. And you'll be able to reduce your, your training time by following these basic principles. The hierarchy of scale is basically saying, well, look, you start at the bottom train on one GPU. Weak scaling, you can scale to find good hyperparameters. We're actually doing this using a framework called Maggie that we've developed runs on top of Spark and you can use TensorFlow inside of it and it, it works very well. And then you have distributed training. We also do distributed training in Maggie, but it's an open source framework that, that we've developed Maggie, but you basically build the ring and TensorFlow helps you at some level. Maggie helps you a lot more because in TensorFlow you have to set up something called TF config environment variable with all the IPs and of all the workers and it's quite messy. It's good if you have some support to build that ring for you. When you're at the top, then now you, you of this hierarchy, you're able to use lots of GPUs to reduce your training time and still the state of the art for reduced training time is now called deep speed by Microsoft. But again, it's still following the same collective reduce principles of, of sharing the gradients. The bottleneck is the IO, the network IO, and, and they have some techniques for reducing the size of the gradients and sharding the memory of the, the workers and so on. But the basic principles are the same. I see. I suppose like since the time that you've written this article, have there been any additional research being conducted 
to following the long of strong scaling in Ninja terms and what are some things that you excited yeah. Actually, at the time, there was a consensus. Sammy Benjo, brother of Joshua Benjo, who he works at Google, he wrote an article, a very influential article, saying that when you're sharing your gradients, you shouldn't do it asynchronously. That means asynchronously means basically you compute your changes in, in the gradients and then you send it to your neighbor and, and there's no synchronization point. So there's no point where we're saying, okay, let's wait for all the updates from all the workers and then we go to the next stage. So he basically, and some other co-authors, they claimed that you shouldn't do the asynchronous way because we can make the synchronous way scale and it has better convergence. So at that time, there was, you know, I would say consensus in the community that data parallel synchronous stochastic gradient descent was the way to go. There's been some interesting work by a group out of Freiburg and also from Facebook showing that actually asynchronous methods where workers don't wait for each other but just share gradients can work very well for many different cases. And that helps reduce training time and you get more efficient use of GPUs. And the other thing, main breakthrough I would say would be deep speed and zero by Microsoft. And what they did in that case was instead of the worker having a full copy of the model, and each worker, we take a shard of, so you, you break up the model into shards, and then each worker is the master for a, a different shard of, of the model. And this way you can have models that are larger than fit in the memory of a single worker, and you can train on them, which is great, because you know it's always been a problem with large models that we have, like BERT now, and you know, if you look at GPT-2 or some of these other huge models, with hundreds of billions of parameters, the GPUs that can train them are extremely expensive and you would like to train them on potentially even commodity GPUs. So I think deep speed is a great step in, in the direction of allowing you to train very large models, even on commodity GPU hardware. Also in 2017, an influential research that you work on is called Hops FS, which is a next generation distribution of the Hadoop distributed file system that replaced its single node in memory metadata service with a distributed metadata service view on a new SQL database. While doing research on some you know, work related that paper, I also found your blog post that reflect on AWS S3 architectural flaws. Could you mind tying these threads together and sort of explaining some of the revolutionary aspect of Hops? Sure, and actually we have one just out now where we have built a HopsFS as a new layer on top of S3. It's actually out in production and I had a blog post, which is actually from Page Hacker News, about a month ago about this. A little bit of background. So HopsFS came about because I worked at MySQL cluster, this distributed memory database, and I, it was a hammer that I'd learned how to use. What made it unique was it stored data in memory across many nodes. So you'd shard your data across them, it would be consistent and highly available. So if a node crashes, the database MySQL cluster kept being up. So that was my hammer. I was going around looking for research problems where I'd be able to fix them. And one of them I came across was the Hadoop file system all of the metadata for the file system was stored on the heap of a single Java virtual machine. So it wasn't highly available. If that machine went down, your 5,000 node Hadoop cluster was down. And there were some attempts to make it highly available that kind of worked, you know, active standby replication. But then, you know, it's very, when you get a failure, it's very slow to fail over. You still couldn't make the file system bigger because this was your bottleneck, this metadata server. We called it. So that was a long research project started in 2012. That was their kind of seminal paper in 2017 at Usenix Fast. What we did basically was we replaced this single server. It's called the name node, the metadata server, with a distributed system. So we basically had a stateless set of servers for handling the requests. And then we had this uh, MySQL cluster backend to store the file system data. Now, this has been quite successful. It's running in production at many companies in on-premise hardware. But when you go to the cloud, 
uh, storage is much cheaper in the native object storage systems. So much cheaper than even on the storage on the virtual machines that you get. So one of the problems that we had was we said, okay, well, we'd like people to use HopsFS in the cloud, but S3 is just much cheaper. And then the problems with S3 that, that identified in that blog post and, and are well known and have been well known are that people treat it like a file system. So they'll put a file into a directory, they'll list the files in the directory, and then the file won't be there. And then you list it again and the file is there. And you list it again, it may not be there. And then it comes back again. That particular inconsistency has been just resolved one month ago in early, actually not even this month in December. But there are other, let's say, limitations of S3. And, and the classic one is atomic rename. So being able to take a directory or a file and just rename it and do that atomically. So HDFS does this and S3 does not do it. So in S3, when you, if you have a big file and you want to rename it or move it, it's going to copy it and then it'll delete the old one. So it's not doing an atomic rename. And in fact, all of the SQL, the scalable SQL systems that, that are being used out there on big data, so things like Spark SQL or Delta IO or Hoodie or Hive and these systems, they are built on this very simple primitive, atomic rename. Um, you build up the new state you want to have, and then you do an atomic swap to, to basically ensure that the old state is replaced by the new one. And S3 does not provide this capability. So what we've done recently is that we've actually released HopsFS as a layer where the data for HopsFS is actually stored in S3 bucket. So now you get the benefits, you get atomic rename, you get consistent file listings, you get much larger metadata, you get the ability to store large volumes of data in the metadata layer. And we're doing that to store, for example, the feature store metadata in the same metadata layer. Also our offline feature store Pive, its metadata is again the same metadata layer. And our online feature store, MySQL Cluster, is also in the same metadata layer. So we unify them all in one metadata layer. That's kind of the systems aspect of what we've been doing to, to help make it easier for data scientists to work with features. You know, so these are kind of the basic advances we need to make at the systems level to make it easier for us to build a feature store that provides a good experience to data scientists who want to manage their features, not just for online models, but also for storing large volumes of data for offline training of models. I see. Yeah, thanks for kind of providing the context on some problem with AWS S3 and the key benefits of HDFS to tackle those kind of challenges. And we'll, we'll talk about future store later on, but before that, kind of go back to that period when, you know, you and some of the other colleagues were working on Hubs FS as a research project, right? So after making yeah. a couple of uh, incremental improvements to that uh, research project, your team decided to commercialize Hubs FS and then build Hubsworks which is a user-friendly distance platform for Hops in the early 2018 period. So what was the original intention of making Hops work? Yeah, so when we had this scalable metadata layer, we were trying to solve a problem, which was how do we store sensitive data on a shared cluster? And the existing Hadoop platform didn't support that. You had a single identity. And if I gave someone access to some data and then I gave them access to some other data, they could just copy between the two different data stores or directories. Now, we solved that problem by just adding extra, a lot of metadata. We call it something called a project-based multi-tenant security model, which is kind of a very long name for basically saying, hey, I have these things called projects. They're like repos in GitHub, and you have members of your repos or projects, and there's data inside them. When you're inside a project, you're not allowed to copy to the other project because you have a different identity. We just said we're going to have one identity for each project, 
for each user and we'll use certificates. So TLS uh, X509 certificates to identify the users. And the way we did it was basically because we had a lot of metadata. You know, when you've got potentially terabytes of metadata, you can just add it. And this is a very difficult thing to do in the Hadoop file system because there was limited metadata. So that was the basis for the Hopsworks platform that, that we would have a new security model. And then we would let data scientists work with big data. And then we added GPU support for training models with GPUs. And HopsFS itself, we, you know, we had some really good research results where it was 16 times the throughput of HDFS and millions of operations per second. And we thought, hey, VCs will give us money for this. No chance. <laughs> so, you know, we didn't, we couldn't raise money, at least in Europe, on that. I had to try briefly. But then the data science platform, HopsWorks, that was very interesting because, you know, we had some users and we had a, a customer on the way. You know, at the time, AI was, was getting quite hyped and, and doing AI platforms for developing and operating applications is quite high. We found a couple of really good, there were three actual VCs who were interested in investing in us. So we have a, a company called Inventure out of Finland, Frontline uh, Ventures out of Ireland, and AIC out of London, who decided to take a bet on us. And in September 2018, we raised uh, $1.5 million to commercialize the platform. Mm -hmm. And then our first main customer was uh, the largest bank in Sweden called Swedbank. And it was a great way for us to kind of, you know, productionize and really nail down the platform for that use case. And they've been doing some really great work on training huge models on 40 terabytes of transactions and using lots of GPUs to do that and using the feature store. I see. So let's discuss a bit more specific about the period of commercialized the, the platforms. You already mentioned like around late 2018, Logical Clocks, which is a company that's standing behind Hotspot raised that seed round. And previously, you know, we discussed a bit about public funding from your time working at Rise. Mm -hmm. Right. In your experience, what are some of the uh, relative benefits of public research money and business uh, funded money? Yeah, that's a great question because I have a very strong opinion on it because I meet a lot of people in, in the VC community and in the startup community who think public money is terrible and it's a waste and nothing good gets done. But in our space, if we take the big data space, the Apache Spark project, which is probably the most successful Apache project out there right now, it came from public money. It was developed at Berkeley, Matej Zaria and others like Ali Godsey and Michael Amherst and so on. They were PhD students and postdocs and that project was not developed in industry because it would have taken too long to get started. And we at Rice, we also worked on the first version of streaming for Apache Flink, which is another hugely successful project led by TU Berlin. So Falk and Marcos Group and TU Berlin. They went on to spin off a company called Data Artisans. And they're now called Ververica. They're acquired by Alibaba. And again, another huge project that wasn't developed by industry because it took too long. And the same for our file system, HopsFS. This is a very well-known problem in industry, but because the probability of success was too low and the expected time to solve the problem was too high, industry wouldn't invest. But public money could be used to address, uh, you know, attack these very difficult problems. How do I build it? In our case, it was how do we build a, a scale-out consistent metadata layer for a file system? The only other company we know that has one right now are Google in their Colossus file system. In fact, it's the only system I know at Google that they do not tell anybody about. They don't publicly talk about it. There's no research papers. Uh, we know that people in the team, we've talked to their team about HopsFS, but they know about us, of course, and people who work there say, yes, there's only one other file system with consistent scale -out metadata layer, it's HopsFS. But these are problems that industry isn't necessarily really good at solving. So if they're solved by academia, we can see in the case of Spark, which led to Databricks and then we have Flink, which led to Data Artisans and now Ververica. Uh, HopsFS led to logical clocks, I mean, at some level. So, we, you know, this is a, a well-worn path at some level. And we have links to all those companies because Ali Godzi came from our group and then yeah. 
uh, flink we have committers in our in our group and, and maybe perhaps a first game from us i see research project that we developed in Kenya is gonna have a harder time of getting visa money just because of the time horizon it takes to see like good results I think, yeah, the time horizon is definitely one part of it because VC funds have a timeline. They have to cash out after five years or 10 years. So they, they don't want anything that has low probability and a long timeline, but even if it has a very, very high reward at the end. Mm -hmm. And the other is that, you know, a lot of these research problems, they, you know, the probability of success is, is not always that high, you know. So I understand why it is, but I, I'm also glad that there is still... Uh, support for basic research to develop new systems because I think a lot of these things wouldn't be done by industry. Industry does a lot of great stuff, of course. Uh, really, uh, most of the incremental improvements are, are done by industry. But if you want paradigm changes, it's not always industry who are first to do that. I see. I guess, like, what could be your advice for academics who's doing really paradigm changing research, who like seeking investment, basically like try to find funding for for their work? but have trouble finding like, the right research grant. Like, is there a bridge that you could recommend to both like sort of combine the benefits of public money and NBC funded money? I'm just curious. I, honestly, I think it depends on where you're located. It's a terrible thing to say, but you know, where I'm located in Sweden, we have good public money. We have money that's basic research in Finova, and we have then SSF, which is more applied research pre-commercialization. So we have very good support. But I know some great research being done in places like Lisbon. They build great systems, they solve great problems, but VC money then won't go there because Portugal is kind of, you know, it's, it's not, um, tell me any, you know, unicorns that have come from Portugal and so on. I think, you know, if you're an individual, what's my advice? I mean, you can try and change the system and, and make put Portugal on the map and you'll be well known for that forever. Or if you don't have the uh, patience, just move to where the money is. You know, that's kind of the other option of, of how to do it. But I, you know, I still think at some level, when you make this transition from research project to commercialization project, there does need to be a user base and there does need to be a problem that you're solving. So it's not just enough to build a framework and say, okay, I got my framework I've got a bunch of users. I don't know what I'm doing. You do still need to solve a problem that that industry wants solved. For sure. Yeah, and, and we touched way on that ecosystem aspect later on in the chat. But now let, let's just share and discuss Future Store, which is a significant component of the HubSpot platform and what you have been uh, quite a vocal advocate for. Your article, Future Store, the missing data layer in machine pipelines, provides its definition, the motivation for using one as well as introducing the first open source feature store available in HubSpot. Can you unpack some of the central ideas provided in this post? The original feature store article was actually written by Uber team called Michelangelo. They developed a feature store and they published on, I think it was September 2017. So our article came out 14, 15 months later. So when I read that article, I said straight away, I came back and said, look guys, we need a feature store. We need a feature store right now. And it took a, a few months and I recruited a, a Kim Hammer, who's this brilliant guy out of KDH. Then we started working on it. Now, the original Michelangelo article talked about feature engineering with a domain-specific language. And Airbnb subsequently came out and said, yes, we also do feature engineering with a domain-specific language. So if you're a data scientist, that means you learn this new DSL, the semantics of it, and you compute your features with whatever capabilities this DSL provides you with. And typically that's things like, you know, time-based aggregations. So time window-based aggregations and maybe some other things. And if you need new capabilities, well, you're kind of out of luck. So, you know, I had a background in programming languages back in my PhD and I knew that DSLs have their day in the sun, but then eventually general purpose programming languages 
we left. That's just the way that it has been. Even at 2018, early 2018, we knew that Python was going to win out for machine learning. It was already dominant. We decided that we wouldn't go with the DSL-based approach. We'll go with data frames as the API to a feature store. And we were first with that idea. And data frames, as you know, are available in, in Python and Pandas, but they're also available in Spark. And there's not that huge a difference between them at some level. So we said we'd provide a Spark-based client or Spark-based client to the feature store, as well as a Python-based client. And they would both just work with data frames to compute features. And then you would do your feature engineering in the language, in this case, Python, but we also support Scala, Scala slash Java. And the basic idea that, that we presented was, apart from this data frame APIs and how we compute features, which I said already we espouse doing in a programming language like Python, but how do we then cache those features and make them available? So one of the problems in data science has been productionizing models. So I have a, a model, I've trained it. I'll give you an example at Swedbank. We have this model where we have 250 features. It's trying to predict money laundering. There's a lot of features related to how many transactions people have executed and our financial transactions, money transfers they've made in, in the last day, last week. What's their credit status? Do they have products at the bank? Or you know, all these kind of pieces of information. One of the problems you have is that the application is, are you going to recompute all those features in the application itself? It's not, you know, and then have another pipeline where you compute the features for your training data and ensure they're consistent. It's a really hard thing to do. What you do with the feature store instead is you compute your features, in our case in Python and data frames, and then we push them to the feature store. And the feature store will store these features, cache the pre-computed features, and then you can use them to create training data, or you can use them directly in the models that are being served. So a model that's being served can say, hey, give me James's information about his credit status, the number of money transfers he's done in the last day, last week, and do that with very low latency, because you want to do it in a few milliseconds, get them back, build up the feature vector, send it to your model, and then off you're done. That's the basic idea of that article, is just to introduce the feature store concept. And we had the first full stack, the first open source feature store, but also the first, and still the only really full stack one. There is one called Feast, but it's been kind of layered on top of Google products. And I know that they're moving away from Google products. And so they'll probably get a full stack feature store out there very soon, if it's not already fully done yet. I guess like when looking through that article, there's also a session that you talk about sort of the economy of scale for an organization. Basically, this idea that by using a shared feature store, organization can, it's easier and cheaper to build new models because those new models can reuse features that exist in the feature store. Can you just elaborate more on that, maybe with that example? Yeah, I mean, a feature store isn't for like individual Python developers typically who, you know, just want to compute features and cache them there ready to be used. It's often in larger enterprises, and we've seen this at, at many organizations we work with, somebody will do a project, compute some features, for example, on, on, in a bank, you have something called know your customer data, it's credit data. And so many models use that data, they compute features from your credit history. And it'll be used in many, many different models. So if every time someone starts a new project, they write feature engineering code to compute features from it, you know, there's a huge duplication and effort. So what if you could come in, and we saw this at Uber when they talked about their feature store early, and a data scientist can immediately see features that are ready to use about the know your customer credit history, you know, about how many transactions that you've carried out on your credit card in the last hour or day or week or month, then you can just pick those uh, features and say, I'm gonna put these features together and create training data out of them. We call that join. We use the technical term join. We're joining the features together to create training data because that's what's happening under the covers. So at some level, joining features together means reusing them. Right, I see. And then once you're reusing features, then now the cost of actually you know, rewriting the pipeline to compute the features and so on is, is reduced and it's quicker to get your models out. An organization can be more effective in 
reusing the assets that they've already created, the feature pipelines. Perfect. Yeah, thanks for elaborating on that. And, you know, there's also this blog post on Ashoka Clock's website that talk about the ROI of feature stores with like a nice ROI calculator at the end. I'll be sure to include that in the show notes. So anyone who's interested in kind of digging into some of those benefits can check it out if they're interested. Yeah, sure. I guess your following post kind of related to this topic details how to do CI/CD ML ops with a feature store. And so I'm just curious, like what are some of the critical design that enables the Hops work feature store to refactor a monolithic end-to-end machine pipeline into separate feature engineering and motor training pipelines? Very good question. A very controversial topic, I would say, at some level, because you have teams like TensorFlow Extended at Google who are responsible for their end-to-end machine learning pipelines, and they always talk about end-to-end machine learning pipelines. You start from your raw data, and you get a model at the end. What we wrote about there was that if you have a feature store, you don't do that. You have two pipelines, effectively. You have the raw data to the engineered features, and you stop there. So the pipelines go from your back-end data warehouse, data lake, you know, Kafka, event bus, they compute features and they store them in the feature store and then they're done. They're almost like data pipelines. We call them feature engineering pipelines. And then at the feature store, you start over. Your data scientists come along and say, well, I'm going to train a model. I'm going to select a lot of features, create some training data, train the model, validate the model, you know, test the model, make sure it's good enough. And then if, if it's good enough, deploy it to production. And that's a separate pipeline. So there's effectively two different pipelines that you can have in these systems. The feature engineering ones to compute the features in the feature store and then the training pipelines. You know, to conflate those and say there's one end-to-end pipeline, we think it's kind of a bit, you're crossing too many disciplines. You're going from data engineering at the very beginning, you know, where you need people who are experts at data pipelines and data quality to model training experts and domain experts and so on to, you know, people who want to deploy the model. So the other thing that I think that article touched on, which is quite important, is that if you're doing CICD, we always care about versioning. And in classical CICD, we talk about versioning our code in Git. So we'll, we'll have version code, we'll check in some changes to our code, and it'll kick off building an application. And then you'll test the application with some sort of unit and integration tests. And if it passes the test, we deploy it. But in a model, we have data. It's not just code. We have the data that's being used to train the model. So you do need versioning of data at some level. And we have a different approach, I would say, to many others. So there's many different data versioning frameworks out there in data science. Many of them are Git-based. So what they do is they'll basically say, hey, here's my data. I'm going to create a new version of the data. So I'll create a full copy of the data. And uh, my versions will be basically the, you know, the checksum of the data, for example. So the, the names of all the files and then the checksums of all the files. And then we have our new version. Then. But the problem is when you've got a pipeline, your pipeline will add new data every day or every hour or every even every 15 minutes. You can't make a copy of the data. The, the costs of, of copying the data grow linearly and that's not feasible. So there are frameworks which address this problem. There are three of them in particular that are quite well known. Um, and this is for large volumes of data. We have Apache Hoodie, which was developed by Uber, which is effectively metadata on top of Parquet. You've also got Delta IO, developed by Databricks, which is, again, metadata on top of Parquet. And then you've got Apache Iceberg, which is developed by Netflix, which, again, is metadata on top of Parquet. So we're, at least as part of Hopsworks, we're supporting, currently we support Hoodie, and we're also, in the next version, we'll have support for Delta IO. But we use those frameworks to version the data in the feature store. 
So that means every time your pipeline makes an update to a, a data set, we call them a feature group, a group of features that are computed, we can get the diff between them. We can say, okay, what, you know, what data arrived between these timestamps? Or what did the data look like at this point in time in that feature group? And these are very useful uh, capabilities when you're writing data science applications. I guess the term that you use to discuss that approach to data versioning is um, basically using time travel queries and incremental pooling. Yeah, in, in feature stores, we have this term time travel, which comes up quite a lot. And I, I think people use it a lot to differentiate between data warehouses and feature stores, because a lot of people in the industry think a, a feature store is really just a data warehouse. But the term time travel has been basically used to indicate that, you know, in data science, we often have a need to say, okay, for example, in the case of predicting fraud or money laundering, it might take six months until we find out the results of a particular prediction. You know, we make a prediction that this financial transaction was fraud or not fraud. And six months later, we find out, well, it was reported to the police. It actually is fraud. Okay, but now we need to figure out, okay, if unless I logged that particular prediction, which you may have done, but if you didn't log it, can I go back in time and find out the values of all the features six months ago? And in a normal data warehouse, you can't because the data gets overwritten. But in a feature store, we can use capabilities that we talked about there to base uh, about time travel to say, okay, we have the commits of the data as it progresses over time. If we store all of the commit history, so that means you're, gonna, you're trading off, you're paying more for storage, um, but then you could potentially go back in time and look up the values of all the features for that fraud transaction. And now you can recreate the training sample because at least in the areas of fraud, um, you know, having a real life example of fraud with the correct values of the features is ex extremely valuable. There's huge imbalance in that problem. You have a large number of good transactions, but only a very small number of fraudulent ones. I see. I want to go deeper on, on that topic because you also written another post about the difference between feature store and, and data warehouse. I'm just curious, like, why are data warehouses insufficient for machine pipelines? And besides the point about time travel, what are some of the reasons that a feature store is needed to address some of those insufficiencies? I think the article has a bunch of points, but I would say, if I keep it at the very high level, I think, firstly, it's Python, you know, so you want language level APIs. Now, of course, you can write language level APIs to a data warehouse, but its natural interface is SQL. To a feature store, the natural interface is really Python. Data scientists, in our case, you know, we started out with a first version of the feature store API. We had more SQL kind of based API. And I saw the recent SageMaker released a feature store and it's really SQL based. And we know from experience that data scientists just don't want to use to learn to write joins, inner joins, outer joins, you know, it's not their natural habitat. You know, to be able to select your features and, and join them together to create training data sets, that's kind of the primary use case for data scientists. But also to compute new features, you know, so to take existing features and compute what we call derived features from there. Again, you want to do it in Python and not SQL. Now, the other thing, apart from time travel, of course, a feature store has is that you need very low latency access to features when you're serving a model. So if I have a, this... You know, if I take, for example, this fraud-based model again, and I have to look up 250 features, and I've got a budget of 10, 20 milliseconds to do that, a traditional data warehouse will not be able to re return those features in 10 to 20 milliseconds. There are some data warehousing technology that are hybrid, OLTP, OLAP, you know, but they're not the common ones. The common ones will return in hundreds of milliseconds to seconds, and that's not acceptable. So what feature stores do is they're typically dual databases. You have one 
online transaction processing system or key value store to store the features for serving to give you low latency access to the features. And then you have this OLAP or columnar database to store the large volumes of versioned features for creating training data, but also if you're using batch applications to score those features, you can use it for that as well. So I'd say, you know, this low latency access is probably, you know, the main differentiator. The next version of our feature store meetup, actually, we have a company called Splice Machine who will be claiming that their database does both. So, you know, there is opportunity in this space, I think, for innovation where companies can have databases that meet the needs of both online and offline use cases. I see. I suppose that idea about low latency is really for the purpose of online inference. We try to capture this this online features during inference. I'm just curious, will um, online training an applicable problem for feature stores as well? Well, I think online training has been one of these areas where people have been talking about it for a long time. And I'm, I'm an old guy at this stage. And I remember all the stories about, you know, we had examples in Sweden where then online training, the train timetables and within a day, the system was spouting racist kind of, you know, uh, comments. And, and I think, you know, Microsoft also released this chatbot that was doing online, it was learning online about what users were saying. And immediately it was gamed by people to make it again racist and um, sexist and so on. So I think, you know, a lot of the problems that we have with adversarial training and online systems that we haven't really got great solutions to them. So people have kind of just you know, not really follow that line. It's easier if you write offline data pipelines that can check the quality and ensure the data is comes from a given data distribution, or if it is anomalous, that you can inspect it before you, you let it go ahead and train your model with it. I don't really see online training. I haven't seen any breakthroughs in the kind of techniques we would need to prevent adversarials from polluting train data sets uh, appearing yet. I think we have the techniques in offline case right now. So we, we support frameworks like DQ and Great Expectations, um, which are ways of checking the quality of data as it comes in. And now that we have version data sets, we can even pull out and say, well, look, that ingestion of data was polluted this feature group. Um, so we need to revert that. That was something you couldn't do, right? Even two years ago, you couldn't even do that. You know, you'd have to recompute your huge data set from scratch, which could be extremely expensive. But now you get a bias in a model. Someone says bias in a model. And at least in Hopsworks, you can use provenance to go from that model and say, okay, well, what was the training data set used to train this model? What were the features and the feature groups that they came from this train data set? And then what were the commits in here? Can I have a look at them? And, and, I, and can I look at the statistics over the commits to see if I can find ones where we have anomalous ingestion of data? And then potentially that's the source because often data is the source of bias in models rather than the algorithms themselves. I see, certainly agree, like making sure that, you know, the training and the test set are coming from the same distribution as vital to making sure that, you know, the bias can be detected and remedy properly here we're talking more about feature drift, actually, which is just that you, you have your data coming in and it comes from a certain distribution and then suddenly some data that's not from that distribution comes in. You want to identify that early before you release a bias model, you know, which is very early in the pipeline. Yeah, and it seems like, you know, this online training thing is still more of a research question that needs to be addressed in the future. Yeah, besides feature store, distributed training, project-based multi-tenancy security and experiment tracking are other notable features within the HubSwap platform. As a CEO, like how do you prioritize product roadmap while building a data platform? Yeah, great question. I mean, I kind of do a bit of product management as well. I was more a product manager before and now we're kind of split up across teams. And yeah, customer feedback, of course, is key. When you become a company, 
customers are king and you know certain customers will say we need this and so on we still do have because of our links to the university we still have some strategic kind of long-term visionary product roadmap as well as the integrations that you need with every system under the sun so if I talk more about the kind of longer term roadmap, I mean, we're, we have this framework called Maggie I mentioned earlier, which is unifying distributed training with hyperparameter tuning with just normal single host training. It's in a single programming framework. And what we've done with Maggie is we, we actually integrated it also with our experiment and tracking. So pro, a tracking based system. So MLflow is a, is a tracking based system where you can run experiments and it'll track the results of the experiments and the logs and so on. It doesn't have a file system, which kind of makes it a little bit difficult because if you've got large volumes of data or ML assets produced, you know, things like training data sets, they can't be stored in, in just the metadata store. So, but we have the file system. So we kind of separate out the assets, things like models and training data sets and feature groups that we store in the file system. And then the, the metadata for those that we store in the same unified metadata layer. So we've unified that with Maggie so that you, all you basically do is you write one function you put your training code in it, and then you can decide, will I run that on a single GPU on my Jupyter Python kernel, or will I run it across many servers to do hyperparameter tuning? Because you can just parameterize that function with the hyperparameters that you want to use. And also uh, distributed training. I want to train this function using lots of GPUs to make it go faster. And then that same function, the, it returns a dict, and that dict will track, and anything you print statements you have in there will track, and logs will track. And then when you get into the fit stage, you have auto loggers that, that MFLO have also added to you know, log all of the training information that the things like Keras are, are producing so that you can access that afterwards. You know, because right now, a lot of people are going out to their containers and SSHing in and scraping data in, and it's very messy. So it's great if you have a kind of unified way of managing that infrastructure for you. And that's what we're trying to do there. Mm -hmm. I suppose just continuing that thread, I see that there's been a lot of exciting recent developments on also platform support and, and integration with, you know, Databricks, SageMaker, Kubeflow, etc., and even a new SDK for like the, the Scala and Java framework. You know, what can we expect to see more of the platform in 2021? Yeah, I mean, I think feature stores is in a very early phase. So, you know, we were first out and we have we had this new API that we released just a month ago. You know, we have some, there's going to be some, you know, it's minor improvements to it, I guess, or, over the next year. But the a large focus of, of the company is, you know, we, we have support for Azure and, and AWS now, is basically working within those ecosystems, you know. So when you're working within an ecosystem, obviously we, we support now Databricks and, and SageMaker. And, you know, we haven't added Azure ML Studio, which is, is kind of next. And a large focus of your effort is to be a good citizen inside those ecosystems. So if you want to use a feature store within Kubeflow, this is how you do it in Hopsworks, you know, and this, so a lot of our effort is related to that. Also the managed platforms. So managed platforms take a lot of effort. We have a managed version of Hopsworks for, again, like for AWS and, and Azure. Just to give you a hint of some of the cool things that we're doing, we, we try and always keep it at the cutting edge for new technologies. There will be new stuff coming in Maggie, which is, is very cool. But one project that we have worked on with Rice is Apache Flink. Flink is supported in our platform. And it's vanilla Apache Flink. But what we've been doing is separating out. Flink has local storage uh, of data at the executors, the task executors. So currently they store the data in a local embedded database, a RocksDB database. So RocksDB is an embedded database that run on the task executor. So the problems when you have coupled storage and compute is that if an executor in Flink dies, well, either you have to wait for that server to recover and if it doesn't recover, you have to roll back to a checkpoint for the whole system. So it's actually, you, you get periods of unavailability. Also, when you've coupled storage and compute, 
it's very difficult to scale out and scale down. So elastically scale up your Flink uh, workers and, re and reduce them. But we've actually been working on, on separating out the storage of Flink's data from the RocksDB instance to, again, our go-to tool, NDB, MySQL cluster, that is our unified metadata layer. It also supports storage of data on disk. And the inventor of it, Mika Ronson, works for us now. So a lot of our effort will be again on NDB in the next, our folks in the next year. So I think the Flink project is one really exciting thing and I expect to see some interesting things on NDB happening as well in the next year. Flink is also really cool for real-time feature engineering. Mm -hmm. So that's something we're seeing more from our customers. They have, for example, IoT or they have user-facing apps and they have to do real-time feature engineering and they want to do it in a scale-out, highly available pipeline, not on a kind of a microservice that might fail. And so, you know, that's part of our effort is uh, this Flink project, again, is to, to have the best feature engineering feature store platform that, uh, on the market. I was curious, you discussed a lot about, I guess, emphasize on the importance of, you know, getting customer feedback. Right. Back in 2016, you know, when this project is still a research project and the idea of like, you know, commercializing and making a platform, what are some of the initial hurdles, the challenges that you have to encounter to get the first batch of uh, early adopters on board? Yeah, I, that's the really hard problem, I think, for anybody who's developing products is how, how do you get your first users? We had the university and we had the research institute. So there's a natural body of people who would try it out there, which was great. That helps you get your product to a state where it's usable and you try and knock out as many bugs as you can. And the next phase kind of, you know, where you're crossing this chasm is, is getting customers to believe in this. So I think just having a user base and having a developer base helps you get your customers because, you know, they've been using it, they've been trying it out, they're happy and they go work in a company and then they recommend it to the company. That's kind of how it started for us. So I think, you know, the starting point for anybody doing an open source project who wants it to be adopted and, and even commercialized is to have great documentation, great examples, and make it easy to install and use. And, and, and you know, we weren't great at any of those. But I think, you know, I, I see that these are really key issues that you need to address if, you, if, if impact and adoption are, are goals of, of your project. Perfect. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that knowledge. Thinking about your experience in both academia and industry, what do you see to be the differences and similarities between being a professor and being a father? Oh, that's interesting. I think the similarities, they're both hard work, right? You know, you work long hours. Professors, I think in industry, a lot of people think, oh, you're a tenured professor. That's, that's the easy life. But it can be further from the truth. I think professors work harder than anybody else I know, you know. As a professor, you have tremendous freedom. You know, um, so, you know, I've been lucky enough in my career to switch areas from, you know, programming languages to distributed systems to AI back again and so on. And, you know, it's a bonus if you if you know what you're doing. And if you don't, it can be you know, a bit overwhel under overwhelming. But academic freedom is still a thing. In industry, of course, you don't have the same freedom, but it's really exciting to, you know, to have impact. I think that's the goal of both research and academia uh, and the industry, sorry, uh, uh, and both. And you want to have impact. You want people, you want to. You want to leave a mark on the world. You want to, if it's by helping people, you know, improve how they develop and operate AI applications, like we're trying to do with Hopsworks, or if it's, you know, making that a better experience and making people more productive so that they can do more and achieve more. Because we all have limited time here. You know, if people can do things faster and they can do more, then, then they can achieve more in the time they have available. Funnily enough, one thing that's very common between academia and industry is fundraising. So going to investors or trying to raise money for research grants, they're very similar skills. So I think mm -hmm. actually academia is good training for that. Perfect. Yeah. I think like in your case, you know, finding a way to leverage the resources from, from both and, and combine them together is huge. Because like I think like a lot of the 
you know, employees in virtual clocks coming from KTH or Arise, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So yes. um, I'm, I'm just curious, like, in terms of your actual, you know, commitment, like, uh, I suppose right now you split time both in KTH and virtual clocks. How do you, you know? Yeah. Well, I'm only 20% at KTH. So I have three PhD students at KTH. I'm not teaching any courses. So, and I have a research project. So I guess my commitment is primarily at the research level right now. So teaching, I don't have any teaching right now, which is great. I'm very thankful for that. Teaching is really, you know, time consuming. Research, of course, is time consuming as well, but not at the same level. And then I, you know, my, my work is primarily CEO of the company, Logical Cox. Gotcha. Finally, you dropped out your thoughts on the worrying trend of deep tech European tech company last year in the blog post. Can you briefly unpack it and how do you see the sugar clocks contributes to the European tech ecosystem in the long run? I wrote a blog post basically complaining that our friends at Flink, uh, the Flink project, they were bought by Chinese company Alibaba. Um, so the company Data Artisans was acquired by Alibaba. They're now renamed to Verberica, and it was a hundred million dollar transaction. And okay, I don't know the you know how much revenue Data Artisans had and so on, but they have the world's leading streaming platform. And if they'd been based in California in the Valley, you know they would have been able to raise more money, and they would have been able to you know grow that to being a very large company that. Would would be a magnet for talent to Europe and, you know, a, a very high tech company. And I was kind of, at some level, I was a bit disappointed, you know, that, you know, Europe's most eminent company in the big data space has just been acquired for really for cheap for a Chinese company. And we've seen this happen over and over again. So very significant com- European companies, the data space, if you take, for example, I worked at MySQL, they're acquired uh, ultimately by Sun and then Oracle. We have companies like Elasticsearch came out of Europe, came out of Netherlands, and they had to move to the States to make money to basically get, raise funding because they couldn't build a business. And then other companies like JBoss, and we've seen even my supervisors, all company I own the technologies. You know, it was a, a billion dollar company, but eventually it ends up nowadays it's in Red Hat, right? It's just so I think one of the challenges in Europe is that we're great at developing the initial technology, and then there's this chasm where we want to build a great huge company that you know commercializes that and draws talent to Europe and builds the technical behemoths and that chasm is a cultural chasm I think in Europe at some level because you know in Europe if someone says here's five million dollars you know you can go and retire they kind of a lot of people say yes we value quality of life and we think you know five million dollars that's a nice house a boat and a summer house great thank you and there's pressure also from your family and friends to say that's what you should aim for and that's good enough to build the next Facebook or Google or or even Red Hat, I think in Europe, we don't have the same cultural drive and goal to do that. We tend to sell out and it's bad for Europe in general, because it means right now in the internet space and in the big data space and the AI space, Europe is really, really weak. Mm-hmm. I think we're one of the companies that's actually a you know, shining light in this area. We're doing new stuff and we're pushing the state of the art, but there's not that many other companies doing it. I see. One particular point that you also brought up in the post, basically you argue that data platforms, companies matters because they are at the bottom layer of the enterprise computing stack. And then yeah. basically like ecosystem can be formed around data platform. Yes. Having that ecosystem means that you can attract new talent and, you know, absolutely, and then have more employees. Can you just elaborate a bit more on that? 
Yeah, I mean, the analogy is the car industry, right? If you're making cars, Europe know that you need to have the makers of cars, the engine makers, right? Because we have all these other companies that make all the parts around cars, like companies like Bosch, who are massive companies. But would Bosch be found in Germany if the German car industry suddenly moved to Silicon Valley? I don't think so, you know? So what you see as well, let's take in Stockholm, we have telecom giant Ericsson. I think they're the world's second largest manufacturer of telecom equipment. There are so many startups here in the telecom space because we have of course you know deep knowledge of ericsson and people develop that knowledge at ericsson and then they found different products higher up in the stack the same happens in data so when you have companies like databricks for example in san francisco or if you take database companies like oracle or even if we take you know the cloud providers like amazon and microsoft and google you know you have tremendous deep knowledge of operating systems file systems databases in these places And that knowledge then extends up to people who are going to build the next data science versioning system, for example. So if I want to have to do a startup in data science versioning, a versioning of data for data science platforms, and there's a bunch of them out there. It helps, obviously, if you come from that environment where companies are working at this and pushing the state of the art. So I think for Europe, it's really important to have you know, significant tech companies in the data space. And we haven't seen that many. Right? And I think that's why it's important to support them. As an industry, it's a key. It's like the way Europe is right now is that we have this new digital infrastructure, which is the cloud and which is data, and Europe owns none of it, right? So it's almost the equivalent of going back to the 19th century and saying, hey, uh, America, come in and build our railroads. And they go, okay, we'll build your railroads and we'll build your trains. And if you want, you can rent the car that sells coffee, <laughs> but you pay very high, you pay 50% rent on it, but nothing else. And Europe aren't even trying to build the railroad or, the, or even the trains. You know, they're just going, well, I'm happy enough to sell some coffee. You know? mm-hmm. That emphasized importance of having the infrastructure piece. I mean, the, the European Commission are aware of this now. We're calling, you know, there are some initiatives in Europe. There's a project called GAX to build European cloud. It hasn't, mm-hmm. you know, it need, the amount of capital expenditure on the top three cloud vendors in the States is on the order of hundreds of billions of dollars in the last mm-hmm. few years. And you would need to match that at some level to have an impact. And it's not happening. I don't see it happening yet. Mm-hmm. Um, I see. Our curiosity, this purpose is about sort of the whole European tech system in general, but you're based in Stockholm and, you know, Sweden is very famous for sort of the startup ecosystem its own, especially in the consumer space, right? I'm just curious, like, what are things that you learned from being in Sweden over these years about yeah. the unique environment of the country that fostered entrepreneurship? I think there's a lot of very large industry here, which is a natural kind of customer base for tech, which is great. And, and, and consumer tech is not the same, but I mean, even if you take us, we worked with Spotify. So we got these huge data sets from Spotify from their multi-thousand node Hadoop cluster. And without that, we couldn't have built HopsFS. So... You know, for us personally, just being able to work with Spotify has helped us um, gain traction and, you know, have impact. Without that, it would have been very difficult. You know, there's a lot of unicorns out of Stockholm. I, I don't know, maybe it's, it's one of the highest in the world per capita, I'm pretty sure. You know, there is de- there's definitely network effects that, you know, somebody starts something and they move on and they help the next person and it builds on from there. That's undeniable. Education is good here, but I don't think it sticks out compared to, you know, there's a lot of good universities all over Europe. I think, you know, access to very large companies. So being able to walk out and knock on the door of Ericsson, H&M, Scania, you know, Volvo, there's Electrolux, there's many, many very large companies just here. That that makes a difference, definitely, I think, for startups in particular. Thanks for clarifying that. 
So, Jim, at this point of our conversation, I want to move on to the final closing segment, in which I'm going to ask you three rapid-fire questions, and then you can you know, give quick response for the listeners. Number one, name three people in the distributed system universe whose work you admire. Uh, I'm going to be a little bit unoriginal. So Logical Cox is the name for our company. So that's a very, very wave of that hat. I guess the father of distributed systems, Leslie Lamport, he won the Turing Award for distributed computing, his contributions to distributed computing a few years ago. The second person I'd say, because of my background again in, in big data and, and AI, would be Jeff Dean. I mean, he he was the guy who developed at Google. He developed the MapReduce framework originally, and he's been involved in TensorFlow, and he's now the head of their AI at Google AI. He's done some you know, really great work in terms of search and he had a background in programming languages, compilers and so on. So third person, I'm going to be a little bit crazy. I'm not naming a distributed systems person, but somebody who's inspired me to apply distributed systems to AI, which is kind of where I'm like, which is the father of reinforcement learning, Rich Sutton. So Rich Sutton, he basically came out and he wrote a manifesto about two years ago, I think. It was called The Bitter Lesson. And, and what he wrote in that manifesto was basically he said, if we look at the advances in AI in the last 20 years, most of it has been down to better use of compute, right? So general purpose methods that are better able to use available computation and in particular distributed computation, because as I said earlier, CPUs and GPUs, they're not getting faster. You know, we've reached the end of Moore's law at some level. We have, you know, we can have more cores per die, but the, really the way we scale is by adding servers, making systems distributed. And he basically said that, yeah, general purpose methods, search, learning, these are the methods that we should be trying to improve and then trying to improve the use of compute and in particular distributed computing um, because that's really how we're going to push AI forward. And we've seen that, you know, larger models, more data, more compute, that's been pushing AI forward for the last 10 years and it'll probably keep going for the next 10 years, I guess. Thanks for sharing those profiles. Secondly, name one book that you would recommend for people to develop a better engineering mindset? Yeah, a book for better engineering. I mean, the one that the books that I remember, I think, impacted me the most were programming language books. A guy called Scott Myers wrote programming language books on C. And there was an equivalent one in Java by Joshua Block. I think it's called Effective Java and More Effective Java. And I always gave that to all people working on Helmstrix read these books before you start so that we have good code. I think programming is a, a fundamental skill that you need to master in order to have impact in the system space, engineering. And, you know, Joe Armstrong, who came from our group, was one of the main inventors of Erlang. He has a great book there. But depending on the language you're going to pick, there's probably some canonical book that you should be reading. And I think for me, Scott Myers and C++ and, and Joshua Block and Java were the kind of the key books that I remember most. Um, and then Joe Armstrong for Erlang. Also, Professor Seferidi from my group had a really great book with Peter Van Roy on programming concepts, which is a massive thome on many different programming styles. Uh, a really great read. Finally, imagine that you can send out a single tweet to all the aspiring big data practitioners on Twitter. What could you tweet about? Oof. A tweet on Twitter about more data and more compute equals better models, better predictions. I mean, I think really that's kind of the, the rich Sutton, the bitter lesson is, I think it's, it's very much true. And if I, to make it very short, I would say, okay, we need better methods to make more efficient compute and more efficient storage for better models. I think that would fit to 160 characters. <laughs> <laughs> Fabulous. I think, James, that's a great way to end our conversation in a kind of overarching theme of this chat. I really enjoy our conversation discussing about your background studying system in Dublin, some of your research that bridged the gap between 
reinforcement learning and you know, reflective software evolution. Some of your work at MySQL, RISE, KTH, and now the short clocks. Fascinating conversation relating to the idea of bringing distributed system concept to machine learning, the evolution of feature stores, a lot of exciting work that Luxury Clock is working on to make the HubSoft platform a premier options for companies who want to make data science and AI core part of their business driving function. And I'll be sure to include all the links and uh, content, blog posts, or videos that you have delivered in the past in the show notes yeah. so the listeners can have a chance to take a look and go around and, and learn more about Luxury Clocks and some of the other ideas that you have been uh, a big advocate for in the past couple of years. So yeah, Jim, I appreciate it. And uh, I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thanks, James. Great talking to you. Have a good one. All the best. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.